0: Worship is encountering the greatness and grace of God and surrendering to his will. Certainly one of the characteristics of a God-built disciple is that person is active in worship. You realize that we're in the midst of a seven-part sermon series entitled Making Disciples, Where we are examining seven characteristics as they're on display all throughout the book of Psalms to describe the disciples that God makes. And a God built disciple is one who is active in worship. I must confess to you that I have carried a burden for nearly every day over the last three years as I see the negative effect of the global pandemic upon church attendance. Not just across this land, but most specifically here in this faith family. If we are disciples who encounter God's greatness and his grace and long to surrender to his will, then there ought to be nothing that would keep us from God's house on God's day with God's people. That even if the Alabama National Guard were to barricade the entrance to this sanctuary, you would anticipate seeing a long line of disciples of Jesus Christ as we elbow our way into the church because nothing could keep us from worshiping the Lord. I realize that there are a few saints because of health concerns, they should not, could not return to God's house. Oh, but that's the exception. That's not the norm. Now, praise God. There are no restrictions to worship attendance these days. But tragically, the adversary did not even have to barricade the door to keep some saints from coming back to God's house. I do not say this to shame you. I learned a long time ago that guilt is a terrible motivator. But God is a tremendous motivator. Here is my thesis this morning. If we encounter the greatness and grace of my God, then it is inevitable that we will surrender to his will in the life and service of worship. Let me repeat that. This is my thesis, that if we encounter the greatness and the grace of my God, then it is inevitable that we will surrender to his will in the life and service of worship. Today I want to see the greatness of God. And I want to see it through the lens of Psalm 24. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn there. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand in a reverence to the public reading of God's holy word As today we examine Psalm 24, a psalm of David. Please hear the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Traditionally, the backdrop of Psalm 24 is the occasion when David brought the ark of God back into the city of God. David assembled some 30,000 men. He got together the band, he crafted a brand new ark, brought the strongest of oxen, went down to the house of Abinadab because the ark was resting there. He employed the services of the son of that priest, and those two young priests were named Uzzah and Ahio. David had them position the ark on the newly fashioned cart, and off they went. From Abinadab's house back to the city of Jerusalem, the band was playing. David was dancing. He was singing. He was shouting. He was moving. He was grooving. He was getting excited. But all of a sudden, one of those dumb oxen stumbled. The ark that was resting on the cart teetered this way and then that way. And Uzzah reached out to steady the ark, and I don't blame him and neither do you. But the moment his flesh touched the holy ark of God, he died right there on the spot. Well, the band stopped playing and David stopped dancing. And all the excitement was just evaporated from the place. Scripture says that what Uzzah did that day was an irreverent act. They took the ark and left it there. By now, they're at the home of Obed-Edom. It remained there for some three months. David went back to the city of Jerusalem with this one question in his mind. How can I get the ark of the Lord to me? How can I get it back to its rightful place in the city of God? How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? I think that David went back into his study. I think he had some quiet time. I think that he read scripture and he prayed and he thought. And then he read some more scripture and he prayed some more and he thought some more. Eventually he came to Numbers chapter 4. Because in Numbers chapter 4, it gives specific instructions that the ark is crafted in such a way that on each of the four corners there's a gold ring acacia wood poles were supposed to be placed through those gold rings and the ark was to be transported from point a to point b on the shoulders of the priest of god there it is that's the secret god did not want the ark to be carried by four-legged Dumb oxen. He wanted the ark to be carried by two legged dumb oxen. We call them preachers, right? So God wanted the priest to carry the ark of God from point A to point B. Now David's got it. He goes back to the house of Obed Edom. He has the band, he has the troops, he has the people, he has the priest. And the acacia wood poles are slid through the golden rod, golden rings, and then the priest carried the ark on their shoulders. Scripture says in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that after they took six steps, on the seventh step, David made them stop and worship the Lord. Every seven steps, they stopped. And they worship God. Why? Because He's great and greatly to be praised. He is great and He is gracious. And God had given His word to His people, and David was so thrilled. Every seven steps, they had a worship service. Now, that takes a mighty long time to get anywhere if you're stopping every seven steps. But if you know the greatness and grace of God, it is worth it. God is great. David made his way back into the city of God with the Ark of God, and he was so exuberant in his dancing that one of his wives, a daughter of Saul, her name sounds funny. It's, it's Michael, and Michael was disgusted at her husband, David dancing around so indecent in the sight of all those slave girls and she was fit to be tied and David came to her and said baby uh I'm not dancing for you I don't really care what you have to say I'll become even more undignified than this These slave girls that you think that I am a disgrace to? No, they will hold me in high esteem. Why? Because I'm doing all of this for the greatness and the grace of God. An interesting side note to the end of that story. The author tells us that that daughter of Saul, Michael, she never had any children from that day until her death. It doesn't say that she was barren. It just simply said she had no children. And why did she have no children? Because the king never came to visit her from that point on. Here's the principle. You ridicule the king and he won't visit you. You ridicule the king. I'm not talking about David now. I'm talking about the king of all kings. You ridicule the king. And he won't come and visit you. He won't visit you with his presence. He won't visit you with his power. He won't visit you with his blessing. He won't visit you with his favor. You ridicule the king. He won't come and visit you. Why? Because the king of all kings, he is great and greatly to be praised. So the backdrop, traditionally speaking, to Psalm 24 Is a story of how David successfully, finally brought the ark back to the city of Jerusalem. Oh, but traditionally, this psalm is rich. In the days of Jesus, the Jewish priest would have read, sung, recited Psalm 24 on the first day of every week. On the first day of the week, this was one of the sacred scriptures that would have been sung and recited. By the priest and by the people. So it stands to reason that when Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem the very last week of his life, on the first day of the week that we call Palm Sunday, outside the temple, the people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And inside the temple, the priest was declaring, lift up your head, O ye gates. Here comes your King of glory. Now, if that's true, which I know it is, that would also stand to reason that at the end of that week, Jesus was betrayed, he was handed over, he was executed, he was crucified. He was placed into a borrowed grave. And on the third day, which is the first day of the week, we call it Easter Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. On that day, outside of the temple, on that day, outside of the tomb, Jesus proved he's victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus got up from the grave. And on that same day, inside the temple, the priest would have led the people to say, Lift up your head, O you gates, for the King of glory is coming in. Now the church, they valued Psalm 24 so highly that on the day of ascension, every year, the church would recite Psalm 24. You ask the question, what is the day of ascension? That's 40 days after Easter. That's the day that Jesus ascended into the heavens the story is told in Matthew 28. The story is told in Acts chapter 1. It's there that as Jesus was caught up in a cloud, he was ascending into the heavens that the disciples were staring spellbound into the sky and angels appeared. And they said, this same Jesus that you have now seen go up into the heavens will return in like manner. In every day of ascension, the church would remember this psalm. Lift up your head, O you gates, for the king of glory is coming in. This psalm is rich. Why? Because it portrays the greatness and the grace of God Almighty. David simply begins in verse one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone who lives in it. He wants us to know Who we worship. We worship a great God. He is the creator of everything seen and unseen. Visible and invisible. He's made everything and everybody. He's made every person. Every plant. Every tree. Every insect. He's made all things. The earth is the Lord's. And the world is his. And everyone who lives in it. So the God that we worship is the God of this world. He's the God of this cosmos. He is the one true God. This is our God's world. Whether it's from Africa to Asia, from Europe to the Americas, this is God's world. The God that we worship, he's not a tribal God. He's not even a national God. Ours is a global God. He's the God of the world. In fact, it has often been said that God chose a planet, a people, and a place to display the greatest drama that's ever been told. God chose a planet. He could have sent his son anywhere, but he chose the third marble from the sun. He chose the earth. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it. He sovereignly selected the earth to be the place where you and I would dwell and where Jesus would come to seek and save the lost. God chose a planet. He chose a people. He could have chosen any group of people, but he chose the Jews. That through the Jewish heritage, the Messiah would come. He chose a place. He chose a sliver of land no bigger than the state of New Jersey. We call it Israel. And God chose a planet, a people, and a place as the stage of the theater upon which his great drama would unfold. That God would step out of heaven and step into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. That Jesus would come. He would live a perfect life. He would die on the, on the cross for not his sins, but your sins. He would be buried in our tomb. A stone would be rolled in front of it. And on the third day, he'd be raised from the dead, victorious over everything that kills us. Victorious over everything that holds us back. Victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And this great drama, God chose On this planet, with these people, at this place, so that we would know his greatness and his grace both now and forevermore. David uses the first two verses just to talk about our great God. You've got to know who he's talking about. This is a global God. He's the God of this world. But then in verse 3, David asks a very important question. Who may ascend the holy hill of God, who can gain an audience with God Almighty, who has the right to stand in the presence of sheer holiness, who may ascend the holy hill of God. He not only asks the question, but he answers it. He says uh, the individual who can stand in the presence of God Almighty is one who has clean hands and a pure heart authentic worship, and honest living. That person can stand in front of God Almighty. That person who has clean hands throughout the scripture, whatever you put your hands to, it represents the work that you do, the deeds that you perform. And the work, the labor, uh, the actions that you do in front of others, and even when nobody is watching, it's gotta be clean, The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. They were meaningless because of the lives that the people were living, the the things they were giving their hands to. Stop bringing meaningless sacrifices to me. Learn to do right. Who gets to decide what's right? Who gets to decide what's wrong? God Almighty gets to decide so you do what's right in God's eyes. You do what's right when people's are, eyes are upon you. You do what's right when nobody else is watching you. That gives clean hands. Also a pure heart. Once again, that word purity is a word for morality and holiness in the sight of God. You remember what Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God that if you want to see the greatness and the grace of God, you've got to have a pure heart. If you have a contaminated heart, you got no shot at seeing the Lord. And also, David says that the person who can ascend the holy hill of God not only has clean hands and a pure heart, but it's also one who does not lift his or her soul to an idol. One who has authentic worship idolatry was prevalent in the days of David it's common and prevalent in our day as well of course you've got the big ones when it comes to idolatry money and power and prestige sports sex just to name a few but then you have some subtle idols that find their way in your life and mine things like pride and comfort contentment the calendar even our children you do know that a A good thing can become a God thing. Because an idol is anything that takes our gaze off of God. That's an idol. Idol is anything that takes our gaze off of God. You can have some pretty good things that take your gaze off of God, and a good thing can become a God thing. And David says the one who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord is a person who never lifts his soul to an idol. But there's a fourth characteristic, and it's one who has an honest life. He does not swear by anything that is false. Every word that tumbles from your mouth is to be the truth. Every word. Because Jesus said elsewhere, out of the overflow of the heart, we speak. So right here, I want to take a time out, and I just want to ask you, uh, how you doing? How are you measuring up? What grade have you received? I mean, when you examine your life against this criteria, clean hands, pure heart, authentic worship, one who's honest in living. How how do you measure up? How are you doing? I gotta be honest with you. I've got great intentions and really poor execution. I've got great intentions. I've got great intention of doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. I want to be right. I want to do right. I've got great intentions. But i got poor execution. How about you? It's not that God just wants you to have a passing grade. He demands and deserves perfection. It's not that you can just have clean hands some of the times. you got to have clean hands all the time. It's not that your heart has to be pure just more times than it's impure. No, you've got to have a pure heart all the time. And it's not that you just have, uh, you know, some good worship services, but then on other days and other times, you got other things that are creeping into your spirit. No, you have authentic worship all the time. And you never do anything dishonest. Never, never do anything dishonest, and only the truth can come from your lips because you do not swear by anything that is false. Let me ask you, how you doing? How you measuring up? What grade did you get? The reality is, it doesn't matter if you got a 97. God demands perfection. David goes even one step further. He said, blessed are those who seek after the Lord. They'll be blessed. They'll be vindicated. And blessed is the generation who seeks God's face, the God of Jacob. I think to myself, David, you're adding insult to injury here. I mean, I don't know if we as individuals can measure up. I promise you we as a generation can't measure up. Do you know any generation that's ever lived that's clean hands, pure heart, um, authentic worship, And honest living. Do you know any generation? And I know you builders out there, you're going to raise your hand and say, we were the greatest generation to have ever lived. You were a good one, but you weren't perfect. There's no perfect person, therefore, no perfect generation. And here, David says, blessed is the generation who seek the Lord's face. Friends, that is a biblical description of worship. The one who worships seeks the very face of God. Because we want to be close, we want to be personal, we want to be face-to-face with God Almighty. Blessed is the person who seeks the face of God, the God of Jacob. I think David chose that word intentionally. I mean, I know it's in other places, too, the God of Jacob. But did you notice he didn't say the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac? He didn't even say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just simply called our global God the God of Jacob. Now, why is that? Why would he call God the God of that trickster, Jacob? Why why would he say that? Do you remember the story of Jacob? In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestled with the Lord, and the Lord won. By the way, the Lord always wins in every wrestling match. Jacob encountered God Almighty. He wrestled with the greatness of God. The next morning, God stopped playing with Jacob. He said, what's your name? I'm going to change it. No longer will you be called Jacob, you'll be Israel. That's important because a name signifies essence and character. The name of Jacob, the very essence and character of Jacob was going to be changed. Why? Because he had an encounter with God Almighty. And not only that, but God touched Jacob's hip. For the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. Why? Because he had encountered God. And for the rest of Jacob's decades... He walked with a limp. Every time you saw him coming to you, every time you saw him walking past you, you said, hey, that's Jacob, because I recognize his limp. It's obvious. Even if you saw Jacob from a far distance away, you would see that limp, and you'd say, hey, that's Jacob. I recognize that's the guy that wrestled with God, and God won. God touched him, changed his name, and touched his hip. And he's walked with a limp the rest of his life. Friends, have you encountered God in such a way that your life has been dramatically changed? He not only changed your name, he not only changed your identity, he no longer changed your destiny, but he also changed your walk. God didn't just change the way you talk, but God changed the way you walk so that you have a Lord-like limp. You've got a sanctified stride. You've got a godly gait, so that when people see you living, when people see you walking, they say, hey, I know that person. He has been with God because God has touched him and changed him. Friends, I wonder, how's your walk? Do you walk with a limp? I'm not asking for you to have what Tony Evans calls a loser limp. In our men's Bible study, Tony Evans talks about the loser limp that athletes get when they miss the tackle, miss the three pointer, strike out at the plate. When they get up from the field, when they walk back to the dugout, when they walk back down the court, oh, they've got a limp, and it's a loser limp. They're not really hurt. They're just embarrassed. They're embarrassed because they didn't make the tackle. They're embarrassed because they didn't make the play. They're embarrassed because they didn't make the shot. But give it just a little bit of time, and they'll stop limping around. I'm not asking, do you have a loser limp, where you're just trying to give an excuse of why you're not as faithful as you ought to be. I'm asking, do you have a Lord-like limp? Do you have a sanctified stride? Do you have a godly gate where you live your life in such a way that it's just obvious as you walk around that other people see you and they say, <laughs> That guy, that gal, been with God. And God touched them and changed them. I think that's why David says, Blessed are those who seek the face of God, the face of God of Jacob. You get to the end of verse 6, and hopefully you reach the same conclusion I reach. There is no hope for me except in God. I can't be clean enough. I can't be pure enough. My worship can't be authentic enough. My life is not honest enough. You get to the end of verse 6, and you have to agree with David, there is no hope for us. Who can ascend the holy hill of God? Because since God demands perfection, I'll be the first to raise my hand to say I'm imperfect. And I wonder if there's any other imperfect saints here in the house today. You would say, yeah, I'm I'm far more contaminated. I am far less holy than I ought to be. So what do we do? Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Lift up your head, O ye gates. The king of glory is coming in. Lift up your head, O ye gates. The king of glory is coming in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord strong in battle. This is the king of glory. He's the only help for you and for me. Lift up your your heads, O ye gates. The city gate was a place where business transactions took place. The gates always opened outward to let people in. And at the city, the businessmen, the businesswomen, they would do their transactions at the gate. I contend this morning that the greatest transaction in human history took place right outside that city gate. Right outside the city gate of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, the place of Calvary, it is there that Jesus died, not for any, any sins he had committed, but for all the sins I have committed, all the sins that you have committed. And Jesus paid a penalty he did not owe because we have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And in those few hours on that faithful Friday, God squeezed an eternity's worth of your condemnation and my condemnation so that Jesus endured my hell and your hell in our place on that Friday. And Jesus died for our sin. Jesus died for our sake. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a a grave. They rolled a stone in front of it. He stayed there Friday, all day Saturday, even early into Sunday. But then God the Father said to God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit, get up, and the dead man got up and walked out of the grave. because of God's action, the greatest transaction in human history took place. We give God our mess and he gives us his mercy. We give him all of our rags. He gives us all of his righteousness. We give him all of our gross sin and he gives us all of his glorious savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, and where did that happen? Right outside the city gates. I find it interesting that when David gets to the final stanza here, between verses seven to ten, on two occasions he says, "Lift up your heads, O ye gates." Says it twice: once in verse seven, once in verse nine. Also, on two occasions he asks the question, "Who is the King of Glory?" He asked that question in verse 8 and in verse 10. My question to you is, why did David have to say it twice? Why did he say on two occasions, lift up your heads, O ye gates? And why on two occasions did he ask the question, who is this king of glory? Is it because David has a stuttering problem? Is it because David didn't know what else to say? Is it because he was just filling scripture space? No. I think the reason David said that twice is because Jesus came twice. The first time Jesus came was at the incarnation. Literally, God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. God came to us because there was no way for us to get to God. And God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as your suffering servant. And he was raised from the dead. He ascended into the heavens. He is the king of glory. He's the one who gives vindication and blessing and favor and salvation. Jesus came the first time at the incarnation. But Jesus is coming a second time. David says this twice because by the power of the Holy Spirit, David realizes that the Messiah will come twice. You do know Jesus coming back, don't you? I mean, I know it's been 2,000 years. But just because it's been 2,000 years, it doesn't negate the promise that this Jesus that you saw go up into the heavens, he will come back. In like manner, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he'll enter through that eastern gate. I've never been to Israel. Maybe I'll go one day. But I've seen the story, I've seen the pictures and I've heard the stories. That many years ago, followers of Islam, they walled up the eastern gate. I think they did it out of fear. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And maybe he will try to come back through the eastern gate. So followers of Islam, they they walled up that eastern gate. And I'm just simple-minded enough to come to this conclusion. If a stone couldn't stop him the first time, I don't think a few more rocks will stop him a second time the stone couldn't stop him on Easter Sunday morning and you can wall up the eastern gate as much as you want to but it ain't gonna stop him the second time because he will come through the eastern gate and what will be declared lift up your heads O ye gates here comes the king of glory who is this king of glory it's the Lord strong and mighty Jesus is coming back. Revelation 19 tells us about this grand occurrence when Jesus splits the eastern sky. He'll be mounted on a white horse. On his head will be many crowns. His eyes will be like a blazing furnace of fire. And out of his lips will come a sword, the very word of God. He'll be draped in a righteous robe that's dipped in redemptive blood. On his thighs will be tattooed his title and his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He'll be mounted on that white horse. He will come with his holy entourage. He will peel back the eastern sky. They will come and descend right there on that sliver of land called uh, Israel. He'll go to Jerusalem. He'll go through the eastern gate. He will set up shop and rule and reign for a thousand years. And then he will take us into the eternal state. I'm just here to tell you, Jesus came once and he's coming back again. So David says this twice, because by the holy power of the Holy Spirit, he's made aware that Messiah will come twice. Yes, we are living between the advents, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. But regardless of when you live, we hear the words of David, lift up your heads, O ye gates, The King of Glory is coming in. See, I think when you see the greatness and grace of my God, you will inevitably surrender to his will in the life and service of worship. So on Monday, we worship him. And on Tuesday, we praise him. And on Wednesday, We glorify him, and on Thursday we thank him, and on Friday we magnify him, and on Saturday we celebrate him, and on Sunday we surrender everything to him. So all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Why do we surrender everything to Jesus? Because he is the King of glory. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the maker of everything seen and unseen. He is the global God of this world and the universe. He is the righteous redeemer. He is the mighty Messiah. He is worthy of all of our praise. The only hope we have is him. The only chance we have of standing in the holy hill of God Almighty, in his glorious presence, the only chance we have is Jesus. Because I'll go ahead and tell you, your hands, they're not clean enough. Your heart, it is not pure enough. Your worship is not authentic enough. and Your life is not honest enough. Not enough to stand in the presence of a God who demands and deserves perfection. So the only hope we have is for the King of glory to vouch for us. The only shot we've got is for King Jesus to say, this one belongs to me. So my righteousness belongs to him. My righteousness belongs to her. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You see, when I, I think that when we catch a glimpse, when we have an encounter with the greatness and the grace of my God, We will inevitably surrender our will to him in life and service of worship. You know, uh, if God's favor would rest upon us, and if we would come hungry to catch a glimpse of the greatness of God, this room isn't big enough for four services to hold all the people. That's just how great our God is. God is great. And he's greatly to be praised. And the only way we stand in his presence is by the transfer of righteousness that comes to us through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. We just believe who Jesus is and what he did. And we declare, lift up your head, O ye gates. The king of glory is coming in. I don't know about you, but I want to be a God-built disciple, one who is active in worship, who simply encounters the greatness and grace of God, and life is never the same because you walk with a Lord-like limp and everybody recognizes you as one who's been touched and changed by God Almighty. And your only response is to surrender to him. His will for your life. In your life of worship. In your service of worship. It is all It is all about Jesus. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. And Lord, we, we pray that uh, you will help us have a divine encounter with you. Lord, help us to catch a glimpse of your greatness. Help us to be a recipient of your grace. Help our lives to be touched and changed. Father, we declare that we need you. So, Lord, there may be some people who need to come and confess sin here at the altar. There may be some people that need to come and pray for a family member or a spouse, a grandchild perhaps. There may be somebody else who needs to come and, and pray for a health concern or, a, or a, a financial crisis or something going on at work. Oh, Father, there may be some people who need to come and join this church. Others need to come and just declare that they're surrendering their life to full-time Christian service. Lord, there may be others who have decisions that need to be made for church membership, for salvation. Lord, help us to come. Help us to surrender it all to you because you're worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.